Today I want to ask a simple question, um, and I have a slide to help me ask it. Oh, isn't that a nice couple? <laughs> what makes you angry? Now we could look at some things that really make you really, really angry, but maybe to keep a little bit lighter, and watch out for the guy in the middle, by the way, I think he's threatening you. <laughs> Ten things I want to look at. Ten little things that make you irrationally angry. Number one, when your internet connection drops. <laughs> That's pretty frustrating. Two, when someone tries to talk to you while you're on the phone. Anybody ever had that happen? Number three, stubbing your toe. Not a fun experience. Number four, forgetting your password. Oh my goodness. Number five, People who tell you to calm down or cheer up when you're neither angry or upset. That's a comment you could do without. Number six, anyone who puts empty cartons back in the fridge. Not helpful. Anyone who pushes the elevator floor button after watching you push it first. Um, kind of annoying. People who are completely unprepared for situations that they know are going to happen. Do you have that friend? If not, it might be you. <laughs> and number nine, people who take up two parking spaces as you circle around and search for something. And lastly, stepping in something wet after just putting on a clean pair of socks. <laughs> I mean, that's about the worst, isn't it? We're continuing our series today on why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? And I realize this series has kind of stretched out a little bit. We've had some things along the way, and tomorrow we're going to take a, or not tomorrow, next Sabbath we're going to take a break because of Easter. But we've looked at several things. Does the truth really matter? I hope we, we answered that Sabbath with a resounding yes, the truth matters. God's word matters. Being biblical matters. Secondly, um, isn't loving Jesus enough? That's another catchphrase that you hear a lot. I love Jesus. I hope you do too. But we want to love everything that is important to Jesus as well. And so if Jesus gives us something in his word for me to disregard it is being disrespectful of the author and finisher of my faith, Jesus Christ. And so that was the second one that we looked at. These are online. If you missed one and want to go back, uh, you can just go to our church website and listen to them there or download the MP3. Number three, what makes you so special? This idea of being the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Is that abusive? Is that bad? Can we say that? Well, really, the Bible says that, and it gives some characteristics for that. And so that is also being biblical. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more and expand on that today with this title, What Makes the Devil Angry? And then in two weeks, we're going to follow it up with What's Wrong with Being a Cultural Adventist? But today's title, What Makes the Devil Angry? And you might say, who cares? I don't care about the devil. But stop and think about it. The devil is on a mission. And that mission is to destroy. And ultimately, he wants to get back at Jesus Christ. And the way he can do that now is through you and through me and the choices and the decisions that we make. And so the more he can lie to us, the more he can dupe us, the better. However, if there's something out there that is a safeguard and keeps that from happening, 
You better believe it's going to make the devil what? Angry. And so I don't know about you, but I want to know what makes the devil angry because that's something I need to pay attention to. Does that make sense? Revelation 12, 12 says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Verse 17 of the same chapter. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, that's the devil, enraged with the church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, King James says remnant, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here the devil is angry, the devil is upset, he's filled with wrath, with rage, because of those two things. The commandments of God, the foundation of his character, who he is, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we looked at this a few times back, uh, these two qualities, two characteristics of God's last day people that keep appearing and reappearing in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 19, 10, it says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I didn't make this up. It's in my Bible. It's in your Bible. Pick any Bible up off the shelf. It's there, Revelation 19, 10. And so we have the commandments of God and we have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And those two characteristics are the two characteristics at end time in God's final remnant church that the devil hates. It enrages him. Why? Because it cuts to the heart of what he's trying to do. He is trying with everything he has to throw out the Ten Commandments. You watch the media today, the Ten Commandments are under attack big time. Lying, cheating, stealing, getting ahead, sexual immorality, on and on it goes. Right down to other gods. Who is it? Well, it's me, myself, and I. And the second is the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. Speaking with a mouthpiece, if you will, through a prophet, through visions, through dreams, of something that is pertinent to the time in which God's people are living. And the devil hates that because it's a heads up. It's letting the cat out of the bag, if you will. It's giving his war plan away. And so he wants to throw that under the bus as quickly as possible. Through books like Desire of Ages, they say this is the most checked out book in the Library of Congress on the life of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful book that the world is voting by checking out from the pen of Ellen White. Other books like Steps to Christ. The devil hates Steps to Christ. Or the great controversy especially, because the great controversy is virtually his game plan, being exposed. I mean, you, you can look in the last portion where it talks about the snares of Satan. As you go through that chapter and the ones following, it just exposes everything that's happening right now. Of course the devil hates it. Why wouldn't he? If God has not restored the gift of prophecy in his last day church, then he would not be faithful to his own word. But God promised to restore the gift of prophecy. So this isn't something we've conjured up. This wasn't our idea. This was God's idea. And we're being faithful to what God has said. Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. God wants us to know. And so he sent us his prophets. 
But Jesus also said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So how can we know the difference? Tell the difference between the true and the false. If there's going to be true prophets and there's going to be false prophets, I need to know how to tell and decipher between the two. And there's really two dangers. The first is to accept the counterfeit. That's a huge danger. I don't want to accept a counterfeit, do you? Absolutely not. How do you have a $17 bill in your, in your wallet? Not at all. Somebody tries to hand you that, you'd laugh and say, I don't think so. We don't like counterfeits. But there's another danger here, and that is to reject the genuine. And I think it stands to reason that if the devil's going to take the time to create a counterfeit, wouldn't there be a genuine to the counterfeit? Makes sense to me. So there's two dangers. So how can we know? Well, there's biblical tests of a true prophet. We went through this about a year ago, so some of this is going to be repeat. And you might say, well, why are we repeating this again? Well, there's a phrase, if the tent is falling over, and as the wind is blowing it that way, I'm going to pull harder on this rope here to try and bring it back. So some people might say, well, this seems imbalanced. You're pulling awfully hard on this rope. Yes, because I see within the Seventh-day Adventist church, this part of the tent is falling, and we need to bring it back to its rightful place. Does that make sense? So biblical tests of a true prophet. Number one is prophetic accuracy. We find this in Jeremiah 29 verse, sorry, 28 verse 9. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Does God guess the future or does he know? So he's going to be right, what, 50%, 60, 70? No, 100% of the time, okay? So that's test number one. Test number two, biblical faithfulness. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, just like we spoke of, of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods, uh uh-oh, bait and switch here, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. Does that make sense? So just because they make a prediction and just because it comes true, but then they say, you know, this is outdated. I've got something new and improved for you. Let me tell you what, or or maybe they'll, they'll, they'll be a little more sly about it and they'll say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. That sounds like the words of Jesus. You think the Bible means this, but it really means that, and they counter or contradict completely what Scripture is saying. Um, You shall not serve him and hold fast to him, finishing the verse. So prophetic accuracy, two, biblical faithfulness. Number three, exalts Jesus. 1 John 4, 1 and 2, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's another test. Do they believe in Jesus Christ? Do they believe in him as the Son of God? I mean, Revelation 19.10, we already read it this morning, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So how can you have prophecy if you don't have a testimony about Jesus and who he is and his character? You can't. I know we're going fast. We've got lots to cover. Prophetic accuracy, biblical faithfulness, exalts Jesus, commandment keeping. 
to the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I think we get messed up when we think, well, there's some light. I'm going to grab just a little here and a little there. Well, there's some stuff in there that's not good, but that's okay. I'm just going to take out the parts that are good. Does it say it's because there's some light in them? No, there's no light in them. Leave them alone. They're not helpful for you. There's some poison out there. You can dilute it with a lot of water, but if you still drink that little bit, it's still poison. And as soon as we think, well, I can decipher, I can tell, we can run into trouble. So commandment keeping. And then number five, physical tests. See, I don't remember this one. Well, physical criteria of prophets. Prophets experience visions with their eyes open. Their eyes remain open throughout the vision. We see that in Numbers 24, verse 4. Uh, We have examples of of Ellen White doing the same. Physical criteria, again, number two. In vision, prophets have no physical strength. We see that in Daniel 10, verse 8. And prophets in vision do not breathe. Daniel 10, verse 17. All things that we saw, um, and we see them here in Scripture. And lastly, spiritual fruitage. By their fruits, Matthew 7, verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Give it a little time. See what happens. See what audiences they attract. See what direction they end up going. By their fruits, you will know them. So those are the tests of a prophet. Do you know it's not, it does not appear on the list, by the way? When the prophet disagrees with me. It's not on the list. Yet I wonder if many people like to throw out the prophet because the prophet is a front to me and the things that I like and that I enjoy and this is stepping on my toes so I'm going to find a reason to throw it out. Sorry, it's not on the list. When the prophet does not fit my paradigm. Well, I think God is more this way and I think God is more that way. I remember a Bible class in high school, and there was the I think and I think on each side of the room, and a a band teacher who just came in to listen to the debate went up to the chalkboard and wrote on the chalkboard while there was this heated debate back and forth. Well, I think this, and I think that, and I think God wouldn't do and would do, and blah, 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 and he just wrote quietly, what I think doesn't matter, what God thinks matters. The only paradigm to have is a biblical paradigm. And another thing, when the prophet disagrees with the latest peer pressure from the scientific community. Well, it's science. How often has science been wrong before? Could we cite some examples? Yeah, I think we could. How old is this stalagmite? Oh, this is millions of years. That's funny. I just found it on my sidewalk. And the neighborhood's only been there for 35 or whatever. Anyway, do you have to make a prediction to be a Bible prophet? Well, no, Moses and John the Baptist, two of the greatest prophets, never made a prediction. Another question, women prophets in the Bible, do we have examples of those? Yes, Deborah, Huldah, daughters of Philip, prophets in the Bible. And so you might think, well, this is kind of a strange thing for a church to claim to have a prophet in 2017. Now, Ellen White has since passed away, but we have her writings. And some people say, well, I think we're going to have other. Well, we might have other prophets, And they'll go through the same test that she went through. But I think we must pay attention to the fact that we have so much that she has given to us that to ask for more is like not finishing what's on our plate and asking for seconds. 
I mean, we say we have her, but if we don't read her, do we have her? If we don't know what she has written, do we have her? Because the church is not a building. It's not administrators. It's you and it's me. It's the people. So the question is, do you have her? And you still might be thinking, well, this is such a weird thing. Well, think about this. In every major period, and you've seen this before, of earth's history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what is impending. Let's go through this very quickly. When the flood was coming, whom did God raise up? Noah. Noah was a prophet. When God was going to raise up a chosen people, who was the father of Israel, whom did God raise up? Father Abraham. He was a prophet. While the, when the exodus came, whom did God raise up? Moses. He was a prophet. When the monarchy came to Israel, whom did God raise up? Samuel. Good. When the exile came for that kingdom, whom did God raise up? And there's several of these, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and so on. You should be able to get this one. When the Messiah came the first time, whom did God raise up? John the Baptist. When the gospel was to go to the Gentiles and all the world, whom did God raise up? Paul. And so every time something has been coming along, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people. So when the Messiah is coming the second time, something that's mentioned over and over and over in Scripture, whom would God raise up? Well, he'd just leave it blank. Does that fit? Is that according to the biblical pattern we've seen over and over and over? No, it's not. So it's really not this crazy idea that, oh, the seventh down in church, they have a prophet. No, all throughout Scripture, God has his prophets. And you read over and over, when they listen to his prophets, they prosper. And when they don't, it's not good. It does not end well for them. So let's take a look at this person, Ellen White. Received more than 2,000 prophetic visions and dreams. Wrote over 50 books. Lectured to thousands on three continents. And she fits all of these. You can apply all of them to Ellen White. Now, if you're still not sure, I, I have a, a study guide. It's not mine, but we have many of them. I'll be happy to get you one, and you can go through. Because if you're like me, you want to study this out, right? If this is new to you, I encourage you, study it out. Don't just take my word for it. You need time with the passages, the verses, to read them in their context, to see, is that person crazy or not? And so grab a study guide if you think I'm crazy, but you need to put this prophet to the test because the fact remains, if this is a counterfeit, then it's all counterfeit. But if this is genuine, then it's all genuine, and we better pay attention. If God sends a messenger, a mouthpiece, to his people at end time to prepare them for what's coming, and we ignore it, I'm just going to be a, a, a Christian that believes in the Bible and the Bible only. It's there in the Bible. God's end time people are going to have it. You can't have it both ways. Study it out. George Wharton James says this remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, she had a third grade education, a bad accident. She almost died on multiple occasions. Um, so she didn't have much of an ed education at all, has written and published more books in more languages, I think right now it's at 154, which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. It's true. You have various things. This Smithsonian Magazine, I have this magazine, I should have brought it. Um, 
a hundred of the most influential people in America of all time. There's all these names on the sides, many of which you'll recognize. I'm sorry I couldn't make that bolder because it was just a picture I grabbed. <clears throat> but uh, where's what I'm looking for? Right here, Ellen White. You know, you got, you got Mark Twain, you got Ansel Adams, you got Oprah Winfrey, you have Neil Armstrong, Susan B. Anthony, all these people. Who's this? Huh. One of the most influential in America of all time, top 100. Should that give us pause? I think it's interesting. Another one, U U.S. News and World Report had an article. I have this magazine at home as well. 11 healthy habits that will help you live to 100. And there's the full list there. Number eight, live like a Seventh-day Adventist, according to U.S. News and World Report. I think it has to do with a lot of things. In fact, the article goes on to say more about it. Americans who define themselves Seventh-day Adventists have an average life expectancy of 89, about a decade longer than the average American. And they attribute that to the Sabbath keeping and the rest. They attribute it to the diet and, and so many other things that our church believes in. Here's another one, National Geographic, The Secrets of Living Longer. You've seen this before, November 2005. So it's a little bit of an older article. But it talked about blue zones. These places across the planet, one of them was Loma Linda, California, which is one of the major hubs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in terms of its medical facility, world-renowned facility. And they say this is a blue zone. And in that article, it says, Loma Linda is home to a concentration of Seventh-day Adventists with a remarkable distinction. Study results have shown that as a group, they currently lead the U.S. in longest life expectancy. Huh. That's just by chance. Is it? You know, they, they interviewed this lady who got her license renewed at 100 years old. Then this guy talked about Blue Zones. And he put a book out. He got on the Oprah Winfrey show. Everybody was interested. What can they do? You know, Oprah says anything about a certain makeup or anything that she loves, it just goes viral, right? Here she had the guy on her show that said, Blue Zone, Loma Linda. Could God be behind that? And his messenger, his mouthpiece, through the prophet Ellen White, who gave us, through the gift of prophecy, the health message? That is far above its time. Last time I went into a lot of that health message. I'm not going to do that again today. George Barna, the statistician, the Barna Group, comes out with research and statistics all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, a lot of books and so on. In 2005, this floored me, most influential authors for pastors of all denominations under the age of 40. And there are the names. You might recognize some, but out of those four, right here, 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon, Ellen White. Huh. So that means you have pastors of Baptists and Methodists and interdenominational and all these other churches saying, man, did you read Steps to Christ? No, what's that? Oh, man, that's powerful. I'm using that in my small group. Have you read, you know, Desire of Ages? Have you read these other? I'm getting so much sermon material. It's incredible. Is this woman with a third grade education coming up with all this? Or is there a reason behind it because she was called of God as a prophet of God to be his messenger for this time? Amen. North American Division Church Growth Survey. I especially like this survey because a lot of times I hear within the Adventist system, everybody always says, well, Ellen White says, and Ellen White says, and Ellen White says. Now I understand we need to be a people of the book, right? I get that. But there's this mentality that if I read Ellen White, I'll automatically not read my Bible anymore. 
Has anybody ever thought that or, or had people address you with that? Well, this study debunks that entirely. And, I, you know, somehow I'll, I'll become this overly conservative, you know. It's not that conservative Adventists believe in Ellen White. Adventists believe in Ellen White. That's what makes us Adventists. It's part of what makes us Adventists. <clears throat> so North American Division Church Growth Survey by Roger Dudley and Des Cummings, Jr. They surve- surveyed 8,200 members of our denomination uh, of 193 different churches, uh, 20 different measures of spiritual life, and one pivotal question, even though they didn't know it, it was just one on the, the 20, do you read Ellen White's writings or not? Yes, no. <clears throat> they found those that checked yes came out in a different category than those that checked no. And here are the results. Describe the relationship with Jesus as intimate. Does anybody here want an intimate relationship with Jesus? That's disturbing. Does anybody here not want an intimate relationship with Jesus? Okay. 82% of the readers said and described their relationship with Jesus as intimate versus 56% of the non-readers. That's a big difference. 26% difference. A high degree of assurance that they were right with God. Does anybody here want an assurance that they're right with God? I do. Again, a huge difference. 82% versus 59%. 23% difference. Involved in Christian outreach and service to the community. Well, all they do is just sit at home and they write these nasty emails and correct everybody. No, they're out in the community. 73% of the readers of Ellen White versus only 49 of the non-readers. Again, big difference, 24%. Have daily personal Bible study. This was the kicker for me. 82% of the readers of Ellen White read their Bible versus only 47% of the non-readers. Now that to me, says, if, if I were the devil, I want to pull people away from Scripture, don't I? I want to pull people away from the source of life. I want to pull people and say, that I have something brand new. That's old. That's, you know, leave that alone. I got this new thing. But no, a true prophet's going to point people back, back, back to God's Word and uphold it and say, I'm the lesser light. This is the greater light. If you would read your Bibles, you wouldn't need me. And so when we read our Bibles and the spirit of prophecy together, that's when we can be like, wow, this is incredible. I'm not saying we can't understand the Bible without it. That's not at all the case. But I like to call it the Adventist advantage that God has given to his people. And we can either accept it, as much as the world is saying, wow, this is phenomenal, or we can just say, rah, 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 rah. 35% difference. Seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion. In the church growth survey on every single item, and I just showed you what, four, that deals with spiritual life, the member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the member who reads them only occasionally or never. Well, you're trying to uphold a person. I'm not trying to uphold a person. God tried to uphold a person, and I want to pay attention to what God has to say. If, in fact, she's a prophet, that means God put those words in her mind, and she wrote them out, and I want to pay attention. So what makes the devil angry? And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, who have the spirit of prophecy. But I hear this as well. But don't we need to just branch out? I mean, that's old. You know, great controversy was published 100 years ago. That's old. Friends, the more I read the great controversy, the more relevant it becomes. You read those last chapters... 
Just in my lifetime, I've seen a lot of what she has had to say come to fruition. I'm putting boxes next to it and putting check next to things. It's not irrelevant because it doesn't have to do with the person. It has to do with the God behind the person. And God's not irrelevant. But in spite of that, we have Adventist pastors saying things like this. To remain fresh, we must be fed from other streams. Streams must flow both ways. Others should inform our present truth. That scares me, folks. We should change. We should learn from others. And they're talking about other authors, people that aren't Adventists, and all these other things. They have these, these crazy ideas. In the Adventist Review, talking about this one project, one of the, the people there said, by reading people, sorry, by reading, comma, people will learn and change and transfer, transform their lives. One of the things they like to do at this conference, and don't think that if you just avoid this conference, you're okay, because it's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And your antenna better be up. But one thing they like to do at this conference is um, hand out books. I'll get to that in a minute. But this idea of other streams. For my people have committed two evils, it says in Jeremiah 2.13. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're drinking from other streams. Do you want your water to be pure? Or do you want it to be tainted? Oh, I like my water to taste bad. And now, why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Why do that? Why go to Canaan? Why go to Babylon? Why go to Rick Warren? Why go to all these other people to see how it's supposed to be done when God has given God's end-time church a whole vast array of books? But we don't read them. I tell you what, you read all of those books through. What, and then I can read the other authors? No, you go back through and you read them again because since the time that you started to the time that you ended, you've had like three other kids, you've gotten married, you weren't married before, you have your kids that are rebelling, you have all these other things, and we have child guidance. We have, so it doesn't matter. You approach it differently from where you are in life. And so to think that we need more. Have you seen how many books he's written and we need more? Why are you going to Egypt? At large, Seventh-day Adventist gatherings across the country, gift books are being handed out. These are two of the the main ones, but there's others. Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright. And I'm a Follower by Leonard Sweet. What do these books have to say? Well, Simply Jesus likes to say things like this. It was not to suppose, sorry, it will not do to suppose that Jesus came to teach people how to get to heaven. It's not going to do. That view has been immensely popular in Western Christianity for many generations, but it simply won't do. Sorry about this twist. I'll try and get rid of that next time. The whole point of Jesus' public career was not to tell people that God was in heaven and that at death they could leave earth behind and go to be with him there. That's not what it's about. Didn't Jesus say things like exactly that? It was to tell them that God was now taking charge right here on earth, that they should pray for this to happen. So now God's in charge. You look around the planet. Does it look like God's in charge in terms of everything that's happening? This is heaven on earth? Now granted, God's in charge. God is still in control. But this is certainly not heaven. 
and to think that maybe the churches are going to come together and that we're going to, to you know, the, the poor are going to rise up and, and all these legislative things and this country and that country, we're going to fix all these problems and eventually God is going to reclaim earth. I don't see that in my Bible. That they should recognize in his own work the signs that it was happening indeed and that when he completed his work, it would become reality. Page 146. There's all kinds of other places where it says when Paul talks about this and him coming and all the rest, no, that's, you're mistaken. Many Christians, particularly in North America, have been taught for the last century and a half that when Jesus returns, he will come down from heaven, he puts in quotes, and that his faithful people, i.e. Christians, will then fly upward into the sky to meet him to be taken to heaven with him forever. You know the verse he's talking about, and so do I. It's right there in Scripture. But it's a complete misunderstanding. Heaven is God's space, God's dimension of present reality. It's here. It's now. It's in you and it's in me. Humana, humana, humana. <laughs> what did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. From the lips of Jesus. But N.T. Wright says the whole country is mistaken. They're reading it wrong. This is Leonard Sweet, the book I Am a Follower, another book they like to hand out. According to the book of Genesis, when God breathed spirit into matter, man became a living being. Even today, to be fully alive is to breathe the breath of God. True followers of the way of Jesus are always aware of their breathing. How many of you are aware of your breathing? I'm pretty sure I've heard doctors lecture on the type of, of mechanics involved in the, bio, or in, the, in the body, excuse me, so I don't have to think about my breathing, right? I mean, those are the blonde jokes you tell in high school. You know, they take the, the headphones off of the blonde and the, and the beauty part, you know, I gotta take them off or I can't do your hair. No, oh, no, no, I have to leave them on, I have to leave them on. What in the world, what in the world? Finally, the hairdresser comes over, forgive me, I, <clears throat> I like blondes. My wife's a strawberry blonde, by the way rips off the headphones, and she just falls dead on the floor. What's going on? And so the beautician picks up the headphones. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. Is that how we're made, that we have to focus on our breathing? No. I don't go to sleep thinking, I hope I don't forget to breathe. But we're supposed to always be aware of our breathing with the internal sounds of life breathing around them and inside of them. Is this starting to sound a little strange? Breathing Yahweh breath is breathing the holy breath of life. Yahweh, our breathing and heartbeat, are in tune with the name. And this is where it gets really weird. Breathe in Yah and breathe out way. I guarantee you will relax. What verse is that? I don't remember reading that. And, you know, you just lead them to this author, and, and Leonard Sweet's written at least 42 books, but he publishes like crazy. Known as a mystic. Here's another one called Nudge. Um, uh, I'm trying to read this down here. Awakening each other to the God who is already there. What does that sound like? That pantheism idea that God's in everything, he's in me, he's in you. 
So let's read this. Nudge is not bringing people to Jesus or introducing someone they don't know but should. Nudge is introducing people to the Jesus in them, to the God they already know but don't know it. Huh. So God's already in everybody. They just don't know it. That sounds dangerous. Another one, Quantum Spirituality. This book, according to their website, they've since taken it down, but uh, the book was written in such a way that you can start reading it. It's circular, uh, written in a circular fashion. So I can pick up the book, I can start anywhere, I can end anywhere, and it doesn't matter. Oh, fancy. <clears throat> this is what that has to say. Mysticism, once cast the sidelines of Christian tradition, is now situated in the postmodernist culture near the center. Mysticism, center. Mysticism, center. Is that biblical? In the words of one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Notice that too. Greatest theologians of the 20th century. I mean, this person is incredible. Jesuit philosopher of religion and dogmatic, Karl Rayner. Okay, what does he have to say? The Christian of tomorrow will be a mystic. One who has experienced something or he will be nothing. Hamana, hamana, hamana. And so on one hand, the devil wants to make the church so dull and boring and lifeless, and then he's going to swoop in with this mysticism where it's all, it's exactly the opposite. It's emotion, and it's loud praise music, and it's tingly feelings up and down, and making the signs of the cross, and walking through prayer labyrinths, and all these things, to just appeal to all this feeling, and I've experienced God. And people get sucked in. They get sucked in. <clears throat> gather a group together for, this is another place in the book, gather a group together for a Navajo breathing ceremony. Stand in a circle, everyone facing the center of the circle. If there are any present in special need or prayer, ask them to center the circle. Place your hands in the center of the backs of those standing on either side of you and observe silence. Does this sound fishy? I don't recall reading any of this. Get in touch with one another's breathing patterns. There it is again. Now breathe together as a circle, bending the knees slightly as you in inhale. Straighten up as you exhale. Keep doing this until the circle become one breath. Friends, this is weird stuff. Why on earth are we having Adventist functions across the country and beyond and we're passing out these two books? Now, this quantum spirituality isn't one of them, but that's the author of one of them. And if I'm blessed by that one, well, what else has he written? Why are we passing this stuff out? How can this be? And they don't make these claims up front, but it's kind of this silent preacher. Okay, I'm going to bless you with something. I'm going to get you to think. I'm going to earn your, your, you know, some credibility, and then I'm going to pass you a book, and I want you to go home, and I want you to read it, and I want you to be enlightened, and I want you to come back next time, and we're going to talk more about it. So this is kind of an under, you know, backdoor approach, the silent preacher approach, and it's dangerous. What do you see up here? Filters. Got a couple of car guys out there. We have an oil filter, we have an air filter. I think that's a fuel filter. For those of you that, you know, forget the car thing, okay, we have water filters. We want to drink pure stuff. Now some people say, well, pastor, I can read that stuff because I, I know what we believe. 
and I have my filter up. Well, good. I'm glad you have a filter. That's a good thing. But what, are, what is a filter intended for? You know, you see me at the gas station. Pastor, what are you doing? I'm dumping sand in my gas tank. How come? I got a filter. <laughs> is that wet sand? Yeah, there's gas mixed in there. Got it for free. What are you doing? And what's going to happen to your filter? It's made for like micro little oopsie things that get in there, not like dumping junk in there. It's the same with the air filter or anything else. If you put muddy water, I don't think that pure thing is really going to help you out enough. And if it does, that filter is going to be what? Clogged. The more junk I put through the filter, the less effective my filter. Uh-huh. And so if I'm feeding my, myself garbage, my filter is getting less and less effective. I took my truck in the other day. They pulled out my filter. It looked something very much like this. They said, when's the last time you changed it? I said, can I plead the fifth on that? Friends, the filter is not a muscle that gets stronger with use. It really gets weaker. And if we are taking in water from streams that are not of God and not of Scripture, that's a problem. And we're fooling ourselves. This is from another Adventist preacher. He says, God is indeed in all things, even chaff-filled fields of wheat. There's a great danger in limiting where God can and shall be found. It's the same kind of pantheistic idea. Scripture is not truth. Jesus is truth, and Scripture merely speaks of him. There is a difference, and he shall be revealed in many odd and interesting places. I already put this quote up once before. And this Adventist preacher put this down on a blog in answer to some things. And I have since found out from people sitting here that's not actually his words. He has stolen that from another named Brian McLaren who writes, you know, a lot of other things. What, uh, Christian orthodoxy or something like that. I mean, I could show you some really strange stuff out of that. But those are his words. So how is these things being handed out? Well, people are drinking this in. They're getting a steady diet of it. And I think it's so sad how God has given us a prophet straight from the throne of God, in my opinion, based on my study of God's word. Yet we're going and drinking out of other streams. And people are getting sick, and we wonder why. Are there greater revelations in Scripture? Yes, Jesus for one and the Holy Spirit now for another. Scripture is our guide to the Spirit. So once scripture takes me away as my guide and the spirit is now enlightening me, it really doesn't matter what the Bible says. There's an authority above scripture, which is the Holy Spirit. He's just telling me all these wonderful things. Friends, the Holy Spirit and the Bible are not opposed to one another. They're one and the same. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. They're not opposed. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I heard this from another Adventist preacher, finding God in the dark. <clears throat> He spent a lot of time at one of our university churches blacking out every window in the sanctuary so it could be perfectly dark. And he preached on black screens with just the words illuminated. Eventually the whole place was quiet for the last two, three minutes of the service. And everybody just sat in the dark. And he was talking about how we need to find God in the dark. And he quoted this author. I was at, at the time, I went to a, we were at a doctor's appointment for James and I saw this, finding God in the dark. Well, that seems odd. All over the place, it talks about how God's the light of the world. Barbara Brown, he quoted this person in his sermon and, and, and praised her book 
And she says things, this is just one of which, darkness is often treated as evil, a vast unknown and, and the ultimate spiritual enemy. But as one of America's leading theolog- theologians believes, it may save us all darkness. We need to go find God in the darkness. I mean, this stuff gets weird, folks. If something that you read doesn't seem right, maybe it's because it isn't right. Don't keep reading it. Find, hey, if this is counter to to Scripture, I'm done. Close the book. Don't clog your filter. And why would our general conference president say this? Seven years ago, First sermon. Many of you may have been there. I was there. I heard him say it. Stay away from non-biblical spiritual disciplines or methods of spiritual formation that are rooted in mysticism. That's what we're talking about. Such as contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and the emerging church movement in which they are promoted. Why would he say that? I remember sitting there thinking, is that such a big problem? He obviously saw it before I did, but it sure has become a big problem. Three angels' message of Revelation 14. Enough of the garbage. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is an everlasting gospel. It doesn't need to be improved upon. It doesn't need to be rewritten. It's everlasting. Saying, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Worship the the God and the creator of the universe. And that's what we're doing right now today on the Sabbath, honoring our creator God. Second angel and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Babylon is a state of confusion. It's a church in confusion. And it's fallen, it's fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I don't understand why they think the way they do, but I think it's because they're intoxicated, as it tells us in the second angel's message, with the wine of the wrath and all these other things. Babylon's fallen, folks. It's time to come out of Babylon. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone, this becomes very individualistic, by the way. This isn't if everyone. It says, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's what God's calling us to do. It's very plain. And maybe you're still not sure about this spirit prophecy thing about Ellen White. She even talked about all this that was going to come. This is one from Selected Messages 48. The very last deception. Which one? Last one. Will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. People are going to take what I write and they're going to throw it out the window. Very last deception. Why? Because the devil hates it. He hates it with a passion. And he's working, working, working to bury it as deep as he can. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. Unsettle. Doubt, doubt, doubt. Another one from volume four of the testimonies, 2.11. It is Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimonies. Step one. Step two. Next follows skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith. We see that happening, the pillars of our position. Step three, the word then, doubt as to the holy scriptures. 
Have you seen that happening? And then four, the downward march to perdition. That's what the, the scripture used to describe Judas. The downward march. A slippery slope. And that's where it starts because the devil hates it. He hates it, hates it, hates it. I know there's all kinds of garbage out there. If you look up Ellen White, you're going to find all kinds of garbage. You go to the internet, there's going to be website after website after website. False prophet, false prophet, false prophet. Why? Doesn't it stand to reason if she was true, people would try to malign her with everything they have? That the devil would attack her with everything that he has? For me, that makes me want to take pause and say, okay, what's there? If people are working so hard to bury it, what's there? 2 Chronicles 20.20. You want to see clearly? Read 2 Chronicles 20.20. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. I want to prosper. You want to prosper. Believe in the Lord and believe in the prophets that he sends. So why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Because truth matters. Because our message is a safeguard to end-time deceptions. Because God has called the remnant church to preach the three angels' message to the world. The time is now. And today's peace because God's word says the last day church will have the gift of prophecy. And because I believe with all my heart it passes the test, I want to read from clear streams. I want to feed on God's word. And the more I, the, the, the survey told me, the more I read from Ellen White, the more I'm going to be directed back to my Bible. I'm going to be able to say, this makes so much sense. It all fits together so clearly. And that's what God intended for his people at end time. Revelation twenty two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say come. This remnant thing is not a closed group, folks. It's about anybody who's seeking after truth about who God is to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, everybody. The door is flung wide open and Jesus is saying, come, come. Man, I've read some stuff I shouldn't have read. Let it go and come. I've done things I shouldn't have done. Let it go and come. Come to the one that can forgive you and can heal you and can put you on the better path, the straight and narrow path. The door is flung open and he says, come. So I don't know about you, but I want to be faithful to God's word in all parts and all particulars. And when God says we have a prophet, I want to pay attention. I want to reason it out. And if it's for real, I want to follow what it says. Dear Heavenly Father, we simply want to ask and to pray that you will help us to see things clearly from your word. I imagine most in this room can very easily think of friends, individuals, I know certainly I can, good friends of mine, that I believe are caught up in this, that don't see things clearly. Lord, I pray that you will make it plain to them. Lord, there are issues in our own life, in my life, that I don't see clearly. Make those plain to me. And may we be faithful to your word, because I believe you are coming soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.